You know, there's an old story about the devil advertising a yard sale. And it seems he was gonna get rid of, sell, sell all of his incredible, treacherous instruments, all the tools that he's used down through the ages to destroy lives. And so the day came for the yard sale, and there they were, all the tools laid out. There was jealousy and pride and sexual immorality and deceit and lying and hatred and on and on it went. And each instrument was marked with the price tag that it was worth. But there, apart from the other tools, was a very worn tool. It, it looked kind of plain, really, like it was nothing special. And it was worn more than the others, but it had an incredibly high price tag on it. And one customer said, what is this tool? And the devil replied, oh, that's discouragement. Why have you priced it so high? And he said, because discouragement is more useful to me than all the others. Because I can pry open a crevice in the heart and I can get in there and I can begin to take a person down with discouragement when none of the other tools will work. And it's so badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know that it belongs to me. Do you ever get discouraged in this life journey? I am now the most miserable man alive. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. Do you know who said that? Abraham Lincoln. As he had just had failure after failure in his life, it had plunged him into a pit of discouragement. I don't know about you, but I definitely get discouraged. And I'm a little encouraged by the fact that I'm not the only one. In fact, one of our heroes of the faith, the one we call the Apostle Paul, one of the writers of Scripture, had his own struggles with this. You see, he had been in four cities in a row where bad things had happened. Boom, 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 right on, one on top of the other. He'd been in Philippi, where he'd been beaten to within an inch of his life and thrown in a dungeon in stocks. And then he had gone in from there to Thessalonica, and a mob was incited, and they began to go after him to rip him apart. And then he went on from there to Berea where there was more controversy and he was driven out of the city and then he went from there to Athens where he reasoned with people there in the Areopagus but even there, there was opposition against him. Boy, is anything going right? He must have thought. He was deeply discouraged and now he arrives in the next city a city called Corinth, and he's all alone, he's weary, and he's deeply discouraged. I don't know for sure, but my guess is he, would prob he was probably thinking of kind of throwing in the towel on this missionary gig. But that's when it happened. 
And by the way, don't let this get lost on you today, follower of Jesus. Just when you are ready to throw in the towel, just when you're ready to quit, that's when God often intervenes and gives you just the word, just the bit of encouragement that you need so that you can keep on going. Look at what God said. And he gave him this message in a sort of supernatural revelation. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. This is from Acts chapter 18, starting in verse nine. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, it... it, It seems crazy to me that God would give Paul a word like that unless he was tempted to be afraid, unless he was thinking of being silent, unless he was so discouraged he thought, this just isn't gonna work out here. In fact, years later, years from when he got this vision at night from God, he wrote back to the Christians in the church in Corinth. We read this in his letter called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I I just, I can't help but wonder that maybe Back then, maybe years earlier, in that episode we just saw in Acts 18, maybe he was beginning to think that his work was in vain. By the way, people often ask me, how does discouragement dog you? I'm gonna tell you. Hope you can handle this. Satan often whispers to me, why are you working so hard? Why are you taking this so seriously? Why put in so much effort? Your work is not really making any difference anyway. I mean, come on, Keener. You're kidding yourself if you believe that the world's gonna be any better because you were here. And that's the tool that Satan uses to discourage me over and over again, and I think it's from the pit of hell. So let's go on this journey together today, and I don't know exactly what form or fashion discouragement comes to you, but I believe that Paul was going through some kinds of discouragement that that I'll bet parallel ours today, and some of the sources that I want us to look at here of his discouragement, I'll bet there's some of the things that some of us are dealing with as well, and I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. So the first one I would highlight that that Paul was going through was probably discouraging cultural tendencies. Now, I know for a fact, and I know this from listening to some of you in conversations, I know that as you look out at the wider world out there, your culture, both locally globally, but particularly as you look at the United States of America and all that's going on, I know that some of you are deeply, let's be honest, you're deeply discouraged today because of this one. 
discouraging cultural tendencies. And you see your faith being marginalized and even mocked on a regular basis. So let's talk about that. How do you handle that as a Christian? What should your attitude be in the midst of a culture like that? Because there's no doubt that that is the reality that we live in in the Western world. So Paul goes to this city called Corinth, and it's this cosmopolitan, bustling city. And as you know, cities are notorious for people kind of reinventing themselves. There's anonymity. You can go and do anything you wanna do, be anything you wanna be, right? And the folks back home probably aren't gonna find out about it. Well, Corinth was arguably the most corrupt city Paul ever visited, including Rome. The soaring temple of Aphrodite just towered over the landscape, okay? It was set up on a hill. And she was the goddess of love. And she was kind of the goddess of the city of Corinth. Our word, aphrodisiac, and a number of other derivations come from that same word. And in Corinth, believe it or not, there were about a thousand temple prostitutes. And every evening, they would come into the city and ply their trade to the would-be worshipers. And customers would engage, as it was believed, in an act of worship to the pagan deity Aphrodite by having sex with one of these temple prostitutes. In fact, Corinth was so notorious for immorality that even today, when you say you're gonna Corinthianize, it means you're gonna let it all hang out and do whatever debauchery you please. So this raises an important question. What should you do with a city like Corinth? Should you just give up on it? Say, ah, they're beyond hope? Do you protest it? Do you write nasty messages on social media and make posts? Do you walk around the streets with a placard saying turn or burn? What do you do with a city like Corinth? I believe Paul went there knowing that discipleship here is gonna be messy because of the mindsets, because of the beliefs, because of the values, and because of the deep brokenness, get this, of the people of Corinth, you better get ready for some messy discipleship. It's not gonna be slick and easy. It's not gonna be all up and to the right. It's not gonna be linear. It's gonna be two steps forward, three steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. Years later, by the way, when Paul wrote back to them in this letter we called 1 Corinthians, he said, You know, some of you were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy. You were drunkards, you were slanderers and swindlers. And then he makes this incredible statement to the Christians there. He said, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is talking here to people in the church, followers of Jesus, and he says, look, this is what some of you were, but you discovered something. People of Corinth, 
as broken and as deeply dysfunctional as you were. You discovered something. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. So how do you handle a city like Corinth? What do you do, Christians, when your cultural tendencies are, so many of them are seeming to go kind of bad in a bad direction? I hope I don't need to tell you the worship of Aphrodite is alive and well in our culture. I'm told that the pornography business is one of the most lucrative businesses in America, and it grows every single year. And the sexual revolution has left people essentially more sexually broken and confused than ever. We, we are closer to the culture of Corinth than many of us realize. So what is the answer? Here's what I think it is. I think we need a new confidence in the gospel. I think when Paul came to Corinth, he he didn't feel adequate for any of these issues. He didn't know how to solve them, but he had the gospel. He had the gospel. And, And look at what he said later when he wrote back to them. He said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that to me takes on special significance when you realize all of the context. Paul didn't come to solve all their sexual immorality issues because he didn't know how, honestly. He didn't come to protest their goddess Aphrodite and single-handedly take on all their idolatry. Paul's strategy was pretty simple. I'm gonna preach the gospel and then I'm gonna let God clean them up. His was not an outside-in strategy. It was an inside-out strategy, not outside-in. That never works very long. It's inside-out. That's the only thing that will work over the long haul. But when he first arrives, he's kind of overwhelmed, it seems. He, he, He just is overwhelmed by the wickedness of the city. And so that's why when this word that we looked at earlier in Acts 18 came to him, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you. That must have been so special because guess what? In the four previous cities, count them, four in a row, he had been attacked and harmed. Assaulted both verbally and physically. And now it's like he's moving into another war zone and he must have felt utterly inadequate. In fact, he described it later in chapter two, verse three. I came to you. How did I come? In weakness and fear. (laughs) Much trembling. I'm looking around at this cultural chaos and man, I'm thinking this is beyond me. I had no power in my own to tackle this, but I had the gospel. And it is infused with the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So brothers and sisters, if you're feeling a little bit discouraged about looking out at the cultural tendencies, my antidote for that that I would suggest is just a renewed confidence in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It still saves, 
it still changes lives. Praise be to God. But there's a second thing I want us to consider as a source for why he might have been discouraged, and that is discouraging personal realities. One thing to kind of look out there at the culture, it's another thing to have kind of things in your own life that are bugging you. One of them was he is lacking friends. When he shows up in Corinth, Paul is all alone. Now, he usually worked with a team, and Silas and Timothy had been with him in these other, or at least in some of the other cities I named. But they had stayed behind in Berea when he was forced out of the city. So he went on to Athens, and they never caught up with him in Athens. And now he's moved on to Corinth, and they still haven't caught up with him, so his friends are nowhere to be found. And it's discouraging. It's discouraging when you feel lonely and friendless and like there's nobody you can really confide in. That is discouraging. But, but, again, God comes through. God comes through when we need him, and he meets a couple in Corinth named Aquila and Priscilla. They're a married couple, husband and wife, and they're these Jewish believers. They'd been living in Rome until Claudius, Emperor Claudius, expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. He said, you gotta leave, and so they did. And Aquila and Priscilla made their way to Corinth, and guess what? They are tent makers by trade, that's what they did for a living, to earn money. Tent makers. Tents were regular accommodation, and they weren't just for recreation like they typically are today in America. Just when you want to go have a weekend camping out, people actually use tents a lot more than they do today. So they struck up a friendship. They had a lot in common. They both were Jewish, their ethnicity and background, and so on, and they Paul has found these soul friends that can rejoice when he rejoices and weep when he weeps. So, let me just say, friendships are an awesome thing. And I honestly hurt for people at Grace who don't feel like they have any solid friendships. That's why you're constantly hearing us promoting small groups. Get in a group. Please join a little community of people and study the word together and do life together. That, that's why we urge you to join a service team of some kind where you can get to know some people. And it's one of the many ways that a larger church can feel a little bit smaller. Friendships are important. For 27 years in the Capital District here, I led a group of pastors just a handful of, of pastors in our area of some of the churches that you would know, Christ-centered, Bible-teaching churches. And we got together once a month and sometimes more frequently, and we ate a little bit of together breakfast, and we drank coffee, and we prayed together, and we shared burdens. Wow, we went through a lot together over those 27 years. And, and the people in the group changed. I was probably the only one who remained the same all of those years. People came and went, but wow, that was special. And over and over again, guys in the group would say, man, this means the world to me. Or they'd be going through a hard time with maybe one of their children or somebody in the church, and they'd say, I don't know what I would do right now without this group to kind of have my back 
and pray for me and encourage me. Friendships are awesome. Now, if you're married, I hope your spouse is your best friend. I have that joy. My wife, Debbie, is my best friend. But I want you to know, you need other friendships too. And hopefully you have some friendships inside the church, outside the church. Why am I hammering this? I don't wanna sound melodramatic, but I just wanna tell you, the day's gonna come when you're really gonna need a friend. And it's often too late then to start working on it. My advice is do it now. Do it now. Work on friendships now. Last Sunday, the, the Masters was wrapped up last Sunday, and congratulations to the Spanish golfer John Rahm, who won the Masters in, uh, in some, some of the most horrific weather that the Masters golf tournament has ever seen, but John Rahm did a great job. But one of the amateur golfers in the tournament, one of the amateur golfers, a young man from Texas A&M University named Sam Bennett also made the headlines, not so much because of his golfing, but because of his tattoo. You see, here's the story behind the story. Sam's dad died of Alzheimer's back in June 2021, but before his death, in a moment of clarity, he gave his son, Sam, some advice that inspired him so much that Sam asked his mother to help his father write it down. And that was hard. In fact, Sam recalled it took him 15 minutes just to write these words because we had to show him how to write out every single letter. It was the last thing Sam's dad ever wrote. And so Sam had those words exactly as they looked in his father's shaky handwriting tattooed on his forearm, and here's a picture of his arm. And the message, don't know if you can read it, but the message from his father says, don't wait to do something. Don't wait to do something. Sam had those words from his dad tattooed on his arm. And he said that message would stick with him forever. I would say to you, don't wait to do something about friendship. Do it today. I, oh, I don't have time to go there, but I can point you to so many people I know right, right now who are incredibly lonely in their lives because they never through the years really gave much effort to this. In the letter called Romans, Paul later gave a shout out to Priscilla and Aquila, and here's what he said in chapter 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Don't, don't you want some friends like that who would risk their life, who would take a bullet for you? That's what Aquila and Priscilla were to Paul. But when he arrives in Corinth, he's all alone. And that's enough to discourage the strongest person. But a second thing about his arrival in Corinth is he was lean on resources. He was essentially broke. And Paul's very practical. He knows the first thing, first thing he's gotta do is get a job. And so he joins in with Aquila and Priscilla 
making tents so they could sell them for a profit. Now, in case you're wondering, let me go down a little side road here. Paul believed, because some of you may be asking, well, why didn't he just ask some all the churches he had started to support him financially? Why didn't he just get Christians to give him money? Good question. Paul believed it totally appropriate that those who preach the gospel should be paid for preaching the gospel, for, from ministry offerings. In fact, in this book we call 1 Corinthians, which we're looking at a lot today, he makes a brilliant case for ministers to be paid. In fact, let me just show you a couple of verses. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? You can read this for yourselves. It's in chapter nine. And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded, get the strongness of those words, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So, man, it is, this is a slam dunk case that ministers should be paid. He even here in this context calls it a right that they should be paid. But then he adds this shocker in the next verse. But I've not used any of these rights. What? He just made a brilliant case that ministers should get paid. But I've not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. So Paul was clearly proud of the fact that he tried to pay his own way in ministry, even though he did let the Philippian church, you can read this in Philippians 4, he said, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. So he did let them support him for some reason. But as a general rule, Paul lived pretty lean, and that can be awfully discouraging. You know what I've noticed in people? When the finances are going south, it's a source of a lot of despair. Amen, amen, amen. Man, when, when you're feeling lean financially, when you can't see how you're gonna pay the bills and make ends meet, it is a source of huge discouragement in this life. But let me look at a third one. He is looking for impact, and right now, in the beginning, he sees no impact at all. You see, Paul's whole purpose in life was to make more and better disciples. But as he looks around, at the beginning, he has no disciples, no spiritual impact. Now, previously when he left Athens, some people had believed, chapter 17, verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed, it says. So in Athens, there'd been some impact, but when he arrives in Corinth, there's no nucleus, there's no core of believers to build on, except that he meets Aquila and Priscilla. So Paul followed his usual routine. You know what he usually did? He went first to the synagogue. If there was a Jewish synagogue in town, ah, here's a connection I can make, because his background is Jewish. He was a rabbi. But he goes there, and they become abusive to him. They literally drive him out. And so he shook his clothes out in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. You had your chance. 
he says to his fellow Jewish people. And since they wouldn't listen to him in the synagogue, verse seven says, and then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. And then in verse eight, it says, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now, I find that interesting. Don't, isn't it a little bit ironic that though the majority of the synagogue drove him out, the ruler of the synagogue, the muckety-muck, the guy in charge, believed and was converted. And now, God is giving Paul some impact in Corinth. Are you discouraged today because of sort of a lack of spiritual impact? Can I tell you a thing that encourages me the most in ministry? It's to know personally that God has used my life and witness in some way, in some way, to help move someone toward Christ. Now, that pumps me up. That encourages me. But I talk to brothers and sisters on a regular basis who are deeply discouraged. They try to share their faith with neighbors and friends and coworkers, but honestly, they're just kind of shaking their head and going, it doesn't seem to be making any difference. And I know a lot of believers who've just kind of had the hope beaten out of them. But here's what I wanna say to you today. Dear brother and sister, if you're discouraged, I believe God is gonna take those seeds you've sown. I believe God's gonna take those prayers that you have prayed of intercession for unbelievers. And I think he's gonna blow those seeds one day by his spirit into the crevice of an unbelieving heart. And it's gonna find soil that is receptive. And it's going to sprout, and it's going to grow, and one day, you're going to be amazed at the fruit God brings. And you know what? I'll go a step further. You may never know it here on the planet, but one day, you're going to be walking down a golden street in heaven, and somebody's going to say, as they tap you on the shoulder, hey, you probably don't know me, but I watched you. Yeah, see, I really didn't believe at that time, but I watched the way you navigated life. And I knew, I knew you had your struggles too, and I watched how you went through hard times, and I could tell you were discouraged, but you hung on to your faith, and you kept living for Jesus, and I'm here today because of those words you shared with me. I urge you to keep on sowing those seeds. God's gonna make gospel seeds grow, brothers and sisters. But one final thing today, I wanna talk for a moment about discouraging church dynamics. Now, why do I say this? All of the churches Paul planted and served, of all of them, the Corinthian church was arguably, I think this is fair to say, the most frustrating to him, okay? Now remember, I said when you go to a city like Corinth, discipleship is gonna be messy because the brokenness is very, very real. 
Please understand, the letters we have in our New Testament, when you open your Bible, these letters from various apostles, you know what they are? They're written to correct problems for the most part. They were written back to local churches and to individual leaders to deal with issues that were going on. Now think about this with me. The church in Thessalonica had its problems and Paul wrote eight chapters total to address those problems. Eight chapters we have in our New Testament. Church in Philippians, Philippi had its problems and Paul wrote four chapters. Church in Colossae had its issues, they did. And Paul wrote four chapters to address some of those issues. Uh, in Rome, uh, there were all kinds of problems there too. And Paul wrote 16 chapters to address some of the problems and stuff in Rome, as well as give doctrinal instruction. Are you ready for this? Paul wrote 29 chapters to the Corinthians. They were dysfunction junction. People are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, just having a hoot nanny of a time. There was unbelievable selfishness going on and factionalism. And a guy's sleeping with his stepmother. Discipleship is messy in Corinth. There were some pretty, pardon me, sucky disciples there. Corinth was a difficult place to plant a healthy church. I think the capital district is too. <laughs> but I love Paul's heart. He had the audacity to take the gospel to the most promiscuous city in the Roman Empire with the absolute confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, murderers, drunkards, slanders, swindlers. I mean, who do, you, who do you want to name? And again, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That describes Grace Fellowship completely, completely. Every person in this church who's been saved by the grace of God and is being sanctified is a trophy of God's grace. Amen. Every single person. And he's not done with us yet. The work he started, he will finish. So do you get discouraged? Sometimes, honestly, I feel like ministry and life is futile and I'm tempted to quit, but God has promised we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. There's a true story about the great pianist Paderewski who was coming to New York City at a small little venue to give a piano concerto and it was sold out months in advance. It was a formal event, so everyone's tucked out, decked out in formal attire. But one mom 
decided to bring her nine-year-old son. Now, that probably wasn't the wisest thing to do at an event like this, but, but she wanted to help her son get inspired. He was balking at his piano lessons. He just didn't want to take them. And she thought, well, maybe if she heard this brilliant, brilliant artist that he would be inspired to, to take his piano lessons seriously. Well, before the concert, he went to the bathroom four or five times. He was up and down and up and down. And he was real kind of fidgety and had a lot of nervous energy. And people were getting a little annoyed. But hey, after all, he's nine years old. But just moments before the concert is to start, the mother is kind of distracted, talking to someone near her, and the nine-year-old boy slips up on the platform to the grand piano that Paderewski is about to play, and he starts playing chopsticks. Some of the audience yelled, get that kid out of here. Where's his parents? Get him off that stage. Paderewski's in the back behind the curtain. He hears the commotion, looks out, and quickly sizes up the situation. He quickly puts his tux on and unannounced goes out to the piano. He bends over the boy and whispers in his ear, keep on going, just keep on playing. And then he reaches his arms around and he starts playing this unbelievable concerto based on the tune of Chopsticks. <clears throat> and all the while, he's urging the boy, don't stop, keep on going. You're doing great, way to go. Just keep going. On many days, That's what life and ministry feels like to me. It's like I'm plunking out chopsticks, going through the motions, not doing much good. Maybe you feel the same way. But in those seasons of discouragement, it's often as though I could feel the master's arms around me, and he's saying, keep on going. You're doing great. Don't stop. You're gonna reap a harvest if you don't give up. And I believe that all the while, when you and I feel that way, he's taking our feeble efforts and he's playing the most beautiful kingdom music you can imagine. Father, I thank you that even someone as godly as the Apostle Paul got discouraged. It's a part of this life. Many of us feel discouraged today. So I pray for that sister right now. She's just right on the edge of quitting. Would you put your arms around her and say, keep on going. You're doing great. Don't quit. For that brother who just had the worst week of his life, he just, he doesn't even know right now if you even hear it when he prays. Would you put your arms around him and say, 
don't stop. You're doing great. Keep on going. And Lord, let us see that harvest one day because you promised that if we don't give up, one day the harvest is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.